Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays. 2 Timothy chapter 1 Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, according to the promise of life that is in Christ Jesus. To Timothy, my dear son, grace, mercy and peace from God the Father and Christ Jesus our Lord. I thank God, whom I serve as my forefathers did, with a clear conscience, as night and day I constantly remember you in my prayers. Recalling your tears, I long to see you, so that I may be filled with joy. I have been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother Lois and in your mother Eunice, and I am persuaded now lives in you also. For this reason, I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord, or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God, who has saved us and called us to a holy life. Not because of anything we have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. This grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time, but it has now been revealed through the appearing of our Saviour, Christ Jesus, who has destroyed death and has brought life and immortality to light through the Gospel. Speak, O Lord, through your word this morning. We thank you for graciously revealing yourself and your ways to us in this amazing book Please take its words, plant them deep in us, that we might know you better and live lives that are worthy of you in every way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Please do take a seat. And I'm thrilled to be here with you this morning. It's great to be here at Christchurch Fullwood, um, a church with a long history, I know, of gospel ministry in this place. I'm delighted that I get to open up the Bible with you this morning uh, in a place which is not unused to hearing the Bible expounded. That's a real joy for me. A couple of years ago, I don't know if you remember it, uh, we celebrated the 450th anniversary, the birthday of the 39 Articles of Religion, the Church of England's official confession of faith. Those of you who grew up with the Book of Common Prayer, may remember flicking to the back of that book to uh, keep you awake during sermons perhaps um, and seeing those 39 articles of faith written out there. They're great reading, still relevant and authoritative for the Church of England today. And this week on Wednesday afternoon, I think it is at 5.30, Her Majesty the Queen will celebrate becoming the longest serving British monarch ever. Back in 1953, many of you may remember it, I wasn't there, Um, Her Majesty was officially crowned and promised to maintain and defend the true profession of the gospel, the Protestant Reformed religion. That is the faith expressed in those 39 articles of religion in the Book of Common Prayer. But why do I start with all this history? Am I just a history buff? Well, this is our spiritual heritage. The 39 articles are the foundation of the Church of England, what the church is built on. And we have grown up, all of us, under a queen who has testified to her faith in that Christian truth 
and acted it out in her own life of service to God. But it also has great relevance to this reading that we've just had in 2 Timothy chapter 1. Because the first thing Paul says as he launches in here to this letter is be faithful to your spiritual heritage. That's the thrust of verses 1 to 7 in the passage. Be faithful to your spiritual heritage. What Paul actually says when you you boil it down is that he thanks God for Timothy's faith. So uh, verse 1, I thank God whom I serve as my forefathers did as I constantly remember you in my prayers. And verse 5, I'm reminded, I've been reminded of your sincere faith. But I think there's a little bit more to it than Paul thanks God for Timothy's faith. I mean, after all, he must be letting us in on that prayer of his for a reason, mustn't he? And I think it's probably to do with the little asides that he inserts into his prayer. So you hear the details in verse 5? He says, I've been reminded of your sincere faith, which first lived in your grandmother, Lois, and in your mother, Eunice. See, Timothy is just one of a long line of gospel believers, of Bible believers. There's a history here. People who came before him, who laboured over him and prayed for him for his spiritual health. Paul knows that too, of course. He says, I thank God whom I serve, as did my forefathers. So Paul too has a believing, faithful family. Going back many hundreds of years, perhaps, even more. So Paul and Timothy are part of something much bigger than just themselves as individuals. They had faithful families and a part of an ongoing work of God which spans the generations. Paul is also reminding Timothy of their close relationship with each other. It's not just that he knows the name of Timothy's mum and grandma. I mean, think about it. Your closest friends, you probably do know the name of their mum, their grandma. You're not that close with people if you don't know the name of their mum and their grandma, I guess. They had a very close working relationship. They'd worked together on the mission fields over many years. And that gives Paul his way in to encourage this young pastor to whom he writes. God did not give us, he says in verse 7, did not give us a spirit of timidity, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline. Timidity. You could also translate that word cowardice. Cowardice. He's saying, Timothy, when God equipped you for your ministry, he did not give you the spirit of cowardice, of timidity. Actually, he doesn't say that, does he? If you've got your Bible open, you'd have noticed I said it wrong. He doesn't say, Timothy, God gave you a spirit not of timidity. He says, God did not give us that spirit of fear or of timidity. He gave us a spirit of power, of love, of self-control. Because it's not just about Timothy. It's about Paul as well. Paul is reminding himself, I think, of God's empowering, strengthening his own resolve not to shrink back and be a coward in the face of suffering. He's saying again, let's be faithful to our spiritual heritage and inheritance. We've been given the spirit of power and love and self-control. Just what we will need 
as ministers of the gospel. We'll need power just to keep going as Christians for a start, especially if we have to suffer for it. Paul tells him in verse 8 that he's going to suffer for the gospel. Join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. We need the spirit of power. And we will need love too, especially when people in the church can be difficult to deal with, especially perhaps people in the wider church outside our own congregation. A lot of Timothy's struggles were with people like that, if you read through the rest of the letter. And we'll need power, love, and self-discipline, self-control, so we don't fly off the handle at our theological opponents, but keep our heads in the face of heresy or of immorality in the church. So you see, it's not just that Timothy is sort of timid by nature or something like that. I mean, if he was timid Timothy, if he was scared by the slightest little thing, then he wouldn't have survived very long in Paul's mission agency, would he? We shouldn't call him timid Timothy. But I don't know. I don't know you. Maybe you are timid. I sometimes feel that way myself. Maybe the thought of suffering in some way for being a Christian is what puts you off kind of committing yourself to being a Christian. Are you there this morning? You're kind of here, but you're a bit wary of it because you have to suffer, especially in a secular society which doesn't like Christianity. It's not a very comfortable thing being a Christian these days, is it? Well, Paul's saying to you, to us, don't worry. Don't worry. God will give us, us, the Spirit to endure whatever comes our way by way of opposition. God has given us everything we need for the task, he says to Timothy. So let's both of us keep going, he says to Timothy. It may not be easy, and we'll come to why that is in a moment, but but let's press on, my dear son, as he says in verse 2. Now, I don't know, is it possible to apply all this to us today? Is it possible to apply it to us? Um, Let's be faithful to our spiritual heritage and fan into flame the gift of God's that has been given, however dimly it may be burning at present. Let's keep the flames of humble, prayerful, passionate evangelism alive here in Sheffield. This town has a long history of clear, passionate gospel preaching. This church has been part of that, a beacon of lights as a witness to the truth of the good news of the Lord Jesus over many, many, many years as your ancestors in this place loved the Lord and lived for him. Let's be like them. Let's be like them. Let's be faithful to that spiritual heritage, not just the spiritual heritage of our own Christian families, if we're blessed to have such, not just to the heritage of faithful leaders who have taught and modelled the gospel to us, as Paul taught Timothy, but also to the wonderful servants of God who have laboured here in this place over many centuries. That'd be great to go on and maybe ponder how this could apply to our denomination too. Can we call the Church of England to be faithful to its spiritual heritage? Things like the 39 Articles. Can we remind our fellow Anglicans of those great preachers and bishops like Thomas Cranmer, Nicholas Ridley, Hugh Latimer, 
the evangelical Bible gospel doctrines that they placed in our national constitution and died to defend. Will the Church of England be faithful to that spiritual heritage and continue to proclaim what the Queen promised to maintain and defend, the true profession of the gospel? Or will the good old Church of England shrink back so that instead of power, love and self-control, we end up with merely worldly compromise, superficial nicety and rampant immorality? Well, I don't know. I don't know if we can apply it like that, but it would be interesting to try. But we must press on this morning and look at the second part of our passage in verse 8. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 8. Now, this is a a key verse for understanding the whole of the letter, I think. Um, So we better spend some time unpacking it. And I think what verse 8 is saying is this. Let's suffer together without shame. Let's suffer together without shame. So do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord or ashamed of me, his prisoner, but join with me in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So because of our great spiritual heritage and history and inheritance, let's suffer together without shame, Paul says. Now, suffering is quite a big theme in this letter of uh, 2 Timothy. Paul himself, as you may know, is in prison as he writes this letter on trial because of his preaching of the gospel. And the temptation is to be ashamed of what? What is it? Do not be ashamed to testify about our Lord. Don't be ashamed of that testimony. Don't be ashamed to tell people the good news of the Lord Jesus. Don't be ashamed. And then, more surprisingly, did you notice this? Took me by surprise. Don't be ashamed of me, says Paul. Ashamed of Paul? Well, there's a whole sermon in that thought. Come back this evening. I'll show you. And we we don't have time for that now. But suffice to say, it is just as much an indication of spiritual immaturity to be ashamed of the Apostle Paul and his teaching as it was in the first century. And there are many people around today who claim to be Christians, but who despise the holy Apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and the things that he teaches in his letters. Things which... Our culture, our age, find very difficult to accept as the word of God, and which we're therefore tempted to downplay, ignore, or reject outright. We'll think a bit more about that this evening. But let's just think for a moment now about how Timothy might have been ashamed to tell people, to testify about the Lord Jesus. Why does he say there, do not be ashamed to do this? Well, For a start, the gospel message is a message about a crucified Messiah. You've got it right at the centre of your church here, I notice. A cross, a crown of thorns. A crucified Messiah. Have you ever thought about it? It wasn't a very popular idea in the first century where crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of the low. The utterly vile death of the cross is what they called it. And you didn't mention it at all, actually, in polite society, without a twinge of disgust. Crucifixion was reserved for the scum of the earth, 
it was not a topic for dinner party conversation. And so you see in that kind of context, to worship a crucified God, that's just madness in that kind of context. Why would anybody want to worship a crucified God? And there is evidence in the pages of the New Testament that some churches did kind of back off that idea. Paul had to remind the Corinthians, for example, about the cross, not as something to be ashamed of, but as something to be proud of. Because in that moment of apparent weakness and helplessness, Christ defeated death and took upon himself the punishment which our sins deserve. So perhaps Paul is reminding Timothy here not to go down the route of those Corinthians who Timothy knew very well and be ashamed of the cross of our Lord Jesus where he was killed like a lower class criminal. I mean, if people, if people that we knew were contemptuous of the cross, we'd be tempted to downplay it, wouldn't we? Maybe not to forget it altogether in our theology, but to emphasise some other less distasteful element about the testimony about our Lord. You may even have heard of preachers who wish to domesticate the message of the cross so that its offensiveness is blunted. They want to remove, for example, all thought of God punishing Jesus in our place, to reconcile the Father to us as the 39 articles put it, of Jesus voluntarily bearing the righteous anger of God against our sin so that we can go free. I heard recently that one large cathedral, or minster, in this part of the world has banned the singing of songs which mention the wrath of God and his anger, even when it's in the context of the anger being taken away by Christ. Such people want to turn the cross into the equivalent of a Che Guevara t-shirt. It's a kind of symbol of heroic sacrifice, an emblem of social revolution and social action or something like that. But Paul calls us to resist such moves to make the cross more palatable and trendy. Don't be ashamed He says, if our message is unacceptable to the world, don't be ashamed if it means you have to suffer taunts and insults. If believing in Jesus, and especially believing in his substitutionary death in our place, appears to be intellectual suicide to our contemporaries. Loyalty to the truth requires the ability to stick one's neck out. And God did not give us the spirit of timidity in such situations. But I wonder, are there other things we're also tempted to be ashamed of about the gospel? I, uh, I wasn't sure, so I did a bit of crowdsourcing on, uh, on this, and I emailed um, a whole bunch of uh, people, men and women, that I trained with at, uh, at Vicar Factory at Oak Hill. And I told them I was speaking on this passage and asked them, What are you tempted to be ashamed of as a Christian or as a Christian minister? Now, let me say before I read out some of their comments, none of these guys are (laughs) shrinking violets. If they they weren't running churches up and down the country, they'd probably be running the country or something like that. But the surprising thing is, all of these guys knew exactly what Paul means in verse 8 here. They were all tempted to be ashamed 
One very passionate evangelist said to me, when I'm explaining the gospel one-to-one or in small groups, it dawns on me, what a stupid idea this is. How silly. What goes through his head is, oh, they'll never fall for this. When he's preaching evangelistic sermons, one said this, I always feel myself blushing as I mention sin and I plead with people to repent and believe. I have this nagging thought, what is the point? Stop now. Don't make a fool of yourself. Another friend who's usually pretty forthright says this, a non-Christian friend said to me, your church doesn't tell people they're going to hell, does it? I wonder why I pause so long before I say something. I stumble out something that isn't too bad, but the pause says it all. I'm ashamed of the truth because I don't want to look bad in this guy's eyes. And an Australian minister friend had this very revealing story to tell. He says, I was once out with friends on a beach mission team. I think he just said that to rub it in, that he lives near a nice beach. Uh, When suddenly on the team, we were accosted by dangerous-looking youths. We're all descended from convicts, you know. That was him, not me, saying that. Um, They surrounded us and started shoving me. I was figuring out who to hit first and how we were going to look after the girls who were with us. Suddenly, my five-foot-nothing tiny slip of a friend started saying, you don't need to hit us. Don't you know, Jesus loves you. I'd love to talk to you about him. They were all so embarrassed, the thugs ran away. (laughs) The shameful thing is that I was embarrassed as well. I'd rather have been involved in a fist fight than show myself as weak and talk about Jesus. I don't know about you. Have you ever met a shy, embarrassed Australian? A minister from Sydney? No, me neither. And yet contemplating speaking up for Jesus can silence even the most ardent Christian, especially if there's suffering involved, whether that's loss of face or loss of blood. So Paul's exhortation here to Timothy, it's spot on, isn't it? Spot on. God did not give us a spirit of fear. Don't be ashamed. Not because Timothy's a weakling or a timid little mouse, but because he's an ordinary Christian experiencing the powerful pull of temptation in a God-hating, anti-Jesus culture. Just like us. And Paul calls Timothy to share in suffering for the gospel. But this is not a senseless call to martyrdom. Paul gives Timothy more than adequate reasons for joining him and the Lord in suffering for the gospel. He gives him in verse 9 and 10 a reminder of what the gospel itself is. And basically he says it's worth it for the gospel. It's worth it for the gospel. So suffer with me because it's worth it. That's my third point this morning. These verses are meant to motivate us to unashamedly stand firm. Yes, it involves persecution and hard work and standing out, but the gospel is more than adequate compensation. So let's have a look in verses 9 and 10 at how Paul reminds Timothy about the gospel. Starts at verse 9. The gospel is about being saved. 
God has saved us and called us to a holy life. It says we need saving from our sin, from its destructive effects in our lives, from its consequences, and from God's righteous anger against it. We need to be saved. And it says it's all about grace. Well, we can't save ourselves. God needs to do it completely. And he does do it, yet not, according to verse 9, because of anything that we do or have done, but because of his own purpose and grace. He is sovereign. It's simply because he's gracious and kind that any of us are saved. Isn't that a great motivation for Timothy, if you think about it? He might feel, I don't know, a bit guilty after the opening paragraph or so of this letter. He may have actually failed to stand unashamedly for Jesus. And then he reads what Paul says here. We all have failed to stand for Jesus in some way or other in some situations, haven't we? We pull our punches. None of us have been as bold as we ought to have been, perhaps. But Paul reminds us here that God is gracious. He's a forgiving God who doesn't save us because we're so worthy, but in spite of the fact that we're not. So what a great motivation in sharing the gospel and in suffering for the gospel. It's just a great gospel. It's good news. Paul then goes on to highlight at the end of verse 9, another aspect of the gospel which is meant to motivate Timothy. He says, God saved us because of his grace which he gave us. I had to read this a couple of times myself to really get it. Is it really say this? His grace was given us in Christ Jesus before the beginning of time. Before the beginning of time. Before the ages began. Now there's a fabulous truth to get your mind around. If so far Paul has been appealing to Timothy's recent history and heritage you know, and telling us about his mother and his grandmother and that kind of thing as a way of encouraging him, then how about appealing to the plan of God from eternity to eternity? God the Father and God the Son agreed to save us even before they created the world. Just get that. And the truth of God's predestination is meant to encourage us and spur us on. It's meant to spur Timothy on. But finally, just notice one other aspect of the gospel which Paul highlights to motivate Timothy. The gospel is the testimony about Jesus. And what has Jesus done? Verse 10. The gospel has been revealed through the appearing of our saviour Christ Jesus who has destroyed death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Life and immortality. These are stunning words. Stunning words. If death really is defeated and immortality has been won for us as Christians, then what does it matter if we have to suffer for a little while? What does it matter? There may be pain and some difficulty in being a Christian. That's par for the course when you follow a crucified Messiah and an unpopular gospel. But it's worth it in the end. I don't know, maybe you're not a Christian here this morning and some of this sounds a bit weird to you, but I hope you can see why your Christian friends keep banging on about it all the time. It's great news if it's true. And it is. And maybe you're faltering here as a Christian this morning. I know maybe sometimes the summer we all go a bit wibbly, don't we? And things just sort of drift a bit over the holidays. Maybe that's where you are today. 
Think about what would happen if you drifted away entirely, what you'd be missing out on if you couldn't be bothered to keep hold of the one who abolished death and brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. Brothers and sisters, eternal life is on offer and at stake. Some people are going to mock the very idea of that, I know. They will mock at the thought of a crucified Jesus who comes back to life three days later and promises a resurrection like that to everybody who follows him. I know, it sounded as fanciful in Timothy's day and to his congregation as it does to many people now in the 21st century here in Sheffield. But it's all true. It's all true. This is not a game. And you can hear Paul getting excited about it in these verses. Don't be ashamed, Timothy, because God has saved us, you and me. He's called us, not because of our works, but because of his grace. Our saviour has appeared, Timothy. So keep going, my friend, my brother, my dear son, keep going. These are great words for us too, to encourage each other with as we start this new term ahead of us. Be faithful to our spiritual heritage. Let's suffer together without shame in the fellowship of the church because it is more than worth it for the gospel. More than worth it. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, we pray that you would give to us not a spirit of timidity and cowardice and fear, but a spirit of power, of love, and of self-discipline, self-control. Please help us that are Christians here this morning to hold fast to the gospel, not to be ashamed of it in any way, And if suffering of any kind comes our way as a result of that, help us to rejoice in it because we know that we're thereby following in the footsteps of the Lord Jesus and of Paul and of Timothy and of many others who suffer for the gospel. Please remind us and motivate us with the truth of the gospel that through it you have abolished death Life and immortality has been revealed in what the Lord Jesus has done. I pray that you'd help us to be thrilled in our hearts with that message and that it would motivate us and spur us on each day for Jesus' greater glory and the good of our nation. Amen. <laughs>